Let's pray. Father in heaven, I'm just a man, and all I have is words. But you have the power. You're the source. You explained that we should pray and conclude our prayers that yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. We look in Revelation where you say that all power and all glory and all honor and all praise is going to be attributed and it should be attributed to you rightfully. And here I am speaking as your instrument and I pray for your spirit to take the simple words I've prepared and speak in a way to the parts of the listeners to where they hear you and not me. And I submit myself to be used by you tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. When we think about power in the New Testament, the apostles so often failed to understand how they were to go about sharing his power in the world. What would it look like to truly share his power? So often the twelve found themselves posturing with each other and debating over who would be the greatest in this kingdom, who would have the highest position, who would exercise the most power in the kingdom of Christ. But my premise tonight is that while the Holy Spirit was promised to the church, to the apostles, to empower them, to fulfill their mission. Christ's mission was to qualify them to share the power. You see, there's a story in the Gospels that I believe captures what Jesus was trying to convey to his disciples and the struggle, inner struggle for power that was going on within this group. And tonight's message is going to be based upon this story. So if you take out your Bibles... And if you'd open it to Matthew chapter 20, we're going to be reading verses 20 to 28. And throughout the reading of this, as we consider this biblical passage, we will seek to draw three qualifications that are prerequisites to sharing his power. Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. We'll read through this entire section and then we will begin to break it down. It says, then, beginning in verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that these, my two sons, may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. But Jesus answered and said, You do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father in heaven. And hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. But Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and the great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you. 
But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You see, as, as you put yourself in the setting of what's going on in this story, you have to understand that in the preceding chapters, there's been a change that's come about between Jesus and his disciples. Beginning in chapter 16, Jesus has brought them into a closer understanding of what he's come into the world to do. And as he's called the disciples nearer, it says that he has begun to unfold to them what is going to take place when he arrives at Jerusalem. He's on his final journey there with his disciples, and along the way he tells them three times in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21, Matthew 17, 22 to 23, Matthew 20, 17 through 19. He begins to share with them that when he arrives at Jerusalem, there's something that is quite tragic that's waiting for him there. Rejection, suffering, and death. But, he says, on the third day, he will rise again. However, this prediction seems absolutely unfathomable in the minds of the disciples because they've been hearing a different storyline that's been playing out over the same amount of time. As Jesus has been trying to get across to their minds what is awaiting him and them when they arrive at the beloved city, the disciples are hearing something entirely different. In fact, if you follow each of these instances where he tells them, it's as if it goes right over the top of their heads. He tells them, I'm going to die in Jerusalem. He tells them these things, and Peter rebukes him. He says, no, 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 never, Lord, not you. We know what's awaiting you. You're going to be king. You are the Messiah. He tells them again, and they don't understand. They become anxious. He tells them again just before he gets to the city as he's around Jericho. And this is when, right after this, this story occurs with Peter, James, and John. I mean, with, I'm sorry, James and John coming and asking for these positions. And the reason is because they've been hearing things in part of what Jesus is saying. What they've heard is that Jesus tells them that some of you, at the end of chapter 16, will not see death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And then, the next chapter, Peter, James, and John see something that none of the other um, uh, nine see. They see Jesus shining like the sun in a Galilean mountain. And then a little later when the rich young ruler walks away sorrowfully and they say, how can anyone be saved if this man can't be saved? And he says, well, with God, with man, it may be impossible, but with God, all things are possible. And he promises them that not one of them who have left houses and lands and father and mother and possessions will, not one of them who have left it will be lacking anything, but they will be given ample to repay them for what they've lost, and then he promises them there that they will sit with him upon 12 thrones, ruling the 12 tribes of Israel when he comes to his throne. And that's the narrative that the apostles have been hearing that leads them to this point. So now as we see this story, I want you to transport your mind with me and picture the scene as a mother approaches Jesus with her two sons. The mother of Zebedee, you need to understand that we can, we can trace her name in the Gospels as Salome. We know this by comparing the crucifixion account at the end of Matthew and at the end of Mark, where it describes the women who are with him. And in one account, it tells us that there were these three, and then in the other account, we find out that the name of the mother of the sons of Zebedee was Salome. Now, what you need to know about the mother of James and John 
is that she was one of the women who had attended Jesus as he went on his Galilean tours. She was one of the women who was there at the cross and watched everything up close firsthand still to come in this story. She was one of the women who went to the tomb the morning of the resurrection. She was involved, very involved in everything that was going on, but something else that you need to know. In my research, I came across Dr. Michael J. Wilkins' account, his research in the NIV application commentary on the Gospel of Matthew. And this is what he has to say about Salome. He says that the best clarification of the listings of the woman identified as Salome is that she was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. And you get this when you look, when you compare all of the references about her, and then you look at John chapter 19, verse 25. This would make her the aunt of Jesus, and this would make James and John his, cousin, his cousins on his mother's side. This adds a little bit of color to what's going on here. Salome cautiously approaches Jesus, almost like a, a young child who is coming to their parents, and yet they're hesitating, their heart is racing, because they want to use the best words possible as they are making their request to have their favorite ice cream, or to get that new bicycle, or that puppy, or in, in, this, in these days, to get their first smartphone. They want to make sure they, they paint the picture in the best light possible as they come to their parents. And Salome approaches Jesus with the same sense of apprehensive. She wants to use just the right words. She wants to go about it just the right way. And behind her are James and John coming to this private interview with Jesus. She bows before him. She kneels with deference, but yet at the same time, she's come exercising her supposed privilege of kinship with Jesus as she makes her request. In Mark's account, if you read the same story, it was just, Mark records just James and John coming. And what we can infer from this is that this was not only their mother's desire for them, but this was also their desire as well. It was something they wanted. As she kneels before Jesus, Jesus looks at her searchingly and he says, what do you wish? With expressions of great anxiety, Salome entreats, command that your kingdom, in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right hand and the other on your left. It's a straightforward request. She doesn't beat around the bush. She's asking that her two sons can be connected with Jesus in proximity, in power, in prestige. And this request from the Zebedee family was likely inspired from uh, Matthew chapter 19, 28 through 30, where Jesus said that the 12 apostles would sit on 12 thrones when he came into his glory. And with far-reaching foresight, Salome wants to preempt for her two sons, the very highest of the two thrones in close proximity to Jesus in his messianic kingdom. Jesus reads the situation and takes it all in. He's not severe in his answer, but he mingles firmness with probing. He says, you do not know what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Jesus' initial response, he doesn't condemn them for their request, but he puts right before their attention the price of the request that they're asking for. You see, because it's often ignorance that seeks leadership 
and power and glory. And the brothers have no idea what they're asking for. The request to reign with Jesus is in fact a request to suffer with him. You see, the cup that he was talking about, you see he unpackages more completely in John chapter 18, verse 11. It's a cup of suffering. If they wish to share in the Messiah's glory, they must be prepared to share in his suffering. They only had a faint idea of what was yet to come for him. You see, that cup of sorrow to him was really a cup of joy. The cross was awaiting him rather than a throne. A crown of thorns rather than a crown of gold. Yet to Jesus, his weakness was his power. His humiliation was his glory. And his suffering was in fact his triumph. Although the disciples could not see it yet. You see, the first qualification, we're looking at three from this story. The first qualification to share with Jesus in his power. The first qualification for those of you who raised your hands and said you want to share his power is fortitude to patiently endure suffering. When you ask, Lord, I want to share your power, you're asking to share with him in his suffering. Do you know what you're asking for? Be careful as it goes what you ask for because you just might get it. There's a story of a farmer who had grown tired of working and tilling the ground. And so one day as he was going to the market in town and he, as he was delivering uh, his produce, he passed by the town hall and he saw that it was filled with all the people. And as he was looking, he asked one of them, he couldn't get close enough to hear or see what was going on, but he said, what's going on in there? And they said, well, there's a traveling preacher who's coming through town and everyone wants to hear what he has to say. Even the mayor's there. The farmer thought to himself and he said, I work my entire life to provide food for these people in this town, but nobody ever appreciates me like this man who's just come through this one time. And he began to grow a little jealous, and he had an idea. He looked up to the sky, and he said, God, I want to do something great for you like this preacher. I want to be known like this preacher. Give me a sign of what you want me to do. Well, he went home that day, and the very next day, as he was working out in his field, he looked up in the sky, and he saw the clouds that one of them looked like a pea, and one of them looked like a sea, and he sh started shouting, that's it, that's it, that's it. And he went racing back to his house, and he says, there it is, there it is. And by the time he got to his house, his wife was out on the porch, and she was saying, there what is, there what is, what is it? And he said, don't you see, it's the sign I asked God for. You see the PC there? God is telling me he wants me to go and preach Christ. So he hung up his tools and put away his farm implements and he saddled up his mule that very day and with a lot of enthusiasm he went out and started traveling around to the near neighboring towns to preach Christ. Well not even a month had gone by and he came back home and he was a bit more dejected than when he left. And when he got home he, his head was hanging, his shoulders were sagging and his wife said, what happened? You're going to preach Christ. And he said, well I, I must have missed something. Because every town I went through, when I preached, people slept. When I rode between towns, people, or it rained. And when I sang, people laughed, and I just couldn't take it anymore, so I came back. And she said, well, what about the sign, PC? And he said, well, I don't know for sure, but he says, one thing I do know is it didn't mean preach Christ. And she said, well, what could it have meant? He says, plant corn. <laughs> Sometimes when you ask for recognition, you don't know what you're asking for. You don't know what you're getting yourself into. 
The first qualification for sharing in his power is to make sure that you have the fortitude to patiently endure the suffering. The disciples rather quickly responded when he asked them, are you able? We are. And the very fact that they were all too ready and eager to give that response betrayed the fact that they were not at all ready for what was coming. You see, God's not looking for the most educated. He's not looking for the most talented. He's not looking for the most confident. He's not looking for the most daring ones to be the ones to share his power. Often he chooses the most helpless, the most self-distrustful, the ones who everyone else has written off. And this is why many people who have looked at the biblical story and looked at the instruments that God has chosen to use, and they say, God does not choose the qualified, but what? He qualifies the called. If you feel today like you're ready to say, Lord, bring on that power because I'm gladly going to suffer for you. That's evidence of the fact that you're not at all ready. Boisterous Peter brashly declared that he would never deny Christ. Yet that very night he found himself alone, weeping bitterly over his denial of his Lord. You don't know your heart as well as God does. Careful what you ask for. If you think you're ready, that's pretty good evidence that you're not. You don't know how you'll react when you're put in the situation, but God does. There was a story of a preacher who was in front of his congregation preaching, and right in the middle of service, the back doors burst open, and in came two masked men carrying semi-automatic weapons, and they said, everybody get down! And the pastor stopped preaching, and everybody froze, and nobody knew what to do. And they walked to the middle of this church and they began to point the guns around at everyone who was in the room. And they said, if you're a Christian, you get out of, if, they said, if you are a Christian, you stay where you are. But if you're not, if you don't believe in God, then you get out of here right now. The pastor was surprised to see how many people left that church so quickly. But when he found himself as one of the few left in the church, he didn't know what to expect was coming next. But then the two masked men took off their masks and set down their, their weapons on the pews and sat down in the front row and said, all right, pastor, we've cleared out all the hypocrites. You can keep going. <laughs> you don't know your heart as well as God does. You don't know what you're really going to do. And this is why I believe Paul penned the words in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Now, I'm spending a little more time on this point of suffering than I will on the, on the following points because there's some of you in this room I know who are saying, wait a minute, but what about me? I'm not asking for anything great. I'm not asking for anything special, so why is God allowing me to suffer? I know there's somebody here who's had that thought. I've got to tell you, I've got to be honest, it's not an easy question to answer. Some of the greatest minds that this world has seen have wrestled with this question and have struggled with it. I'm not one of the brightest minds in this world, and sometimes I found the most useful thing when somebody asks, why is God allowing me to suffer this and to experience this suffering? The best thing I can do is to quietly and sympathetically listen and pray in my heart that God will bring comfort into their life because sometimes words actually are counteractive to what they really need. What would you have said to Joseph 
if he came to you and said, why did I have to experience my own family's betrayal? And when I tried to stand up for God, he rewarded me by throwing me into this prison for years now. What would you have said to him had you not known the rest of his story? What would you have said to Daniel if he asked, why would God allow me to become a eunuch? I've been trying to be faithful for him, and here I am in the service of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. What would you have said to him had he asked you why? What would you have said to Esther if she asked, why did God allow her parents to die while she was still a young girl in the Persian Empire? Without the benefit of knowing the rest of their stories, it would be nearly impossible for us to truly answer their questions. But with the benefit of the full biblical narrative to inform our worldview, I believe that when God's providence allows you to experience suffering today, that as with Joseph, as with Daniel, as with Esther, he has some greater good in mind and he is using the suffering in your life to qualify you for the opportunity to share his power in some special way. And I believe that if we can somehow bring the outlook of Joseph, that while you intended this for evil, God intended this for good, and make that our mindset, we can learn to become qualified to endure suffering with fortitude and patience. Corey Ten Boom experienced many horrific things in the Nazi concentration camps. In fact, sometimes she asked God why, and sometimes she became bitter towards God. But it was the words of her sister Betsy that truly captured what fortitude to patiently suffer what God allows to come. She said to her sister Corey soon, shortly before she died, she said, we must tell them what we have learned here. We must tell them that there is no pit so deep, and yet God is not steep, deeper still. They will listen to us, Corey, because we've been here, and we've experienced it. And it was in, in a, she attributes credit to those words in her, in her book, The Hiding Place, as later on in life, she went out of that concentration camp and she set up a rehabilitation center for concentration camp survivors. She began a worldwide ministry that took her to more than 60, 60 countries. She received many tributes, including being knighted by the Queen of the Netherlands. And in 1979, she wrote her best-selling book of her experience during World War II, which was titled The Hiding Place. The first qualification to share his power is fortitude to patiently endure suffering. This morning I was sitting on a plane next to a woman named Donna. And I'll never forget Donna. She shared with me a heart-wrenching story about how when she was 16 years old, her newborn baby had been stolen, kidnapped from her house by someone who she had trusted and both of them had disappeared. And for the last many years she's been looking for her son that had been kidnapped from her. And she shared with me some of the vicissitudes of the excitement of maybe this is him. Maybe it's not him. And I asked her, I said, what's some of the things that you learned as you went through this awful, heart-wrenching experience of your life? She said, well, many, at first I blamed God. I thought, he's letting me down. But she said, eventually I realized that 
I needed something, and she said she began to go to church. And she said many times she wanted to know the rest of the story and see the future, and of course God doesn't let us see beyond where we're at at that moment. She said she had to learn to lean on him and to trust him. And with the peace of God and the calmness of joy on her countenance, she shared with me the story, and she shared how she's recently found someone who she thought was her son, who was living in Germany. He had been sort of abandoned, uh, sold there, and uh, he doesn't have any papers. It's really a unique situation. And she said that for a while her hope was up. Over a year she thought he was a son. They had the blood test, and they came back negative. But she said she's realized that her experience has uniquely qualified her to be there for him. And now she's doing many things to help him. And she says that the reward is greater than the sufferings that she's experienced along the way. God qualifies you through suffering to share his power in some way. But the story continues. Back in your minds to that account of James, John, and their mother who came to Jesus. Jesus looks at them. He fixes his eyes upon James and John. And with, he begins to answer their request on their own terms. He says to them, you shall drink my cup. James would be the first of the apostles to die. John would endure suffering the longest of any of the apostles and, and be the last to die after he was finally released from the Isle of Patmos. Jesus continues his response by opening to the mind of James and John one of the most important yet rudimentary principles of his kingdom. He says to them, but to sit on my right and my left hand is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. You see, the second qualification to share his power is submission to the source of power. We've got to come to the point where we stop grasping for power and we trust God to bestow it on who he's prepared it for. We've got to come to the point where we stop complaining about who God's put in power and trust that he's the one who removes kings and sets them up and he knows who to put where at the right time and he's in control of everything. Here Christ begins to explain how position and power are bestowed in his kingdom. In the kingdom of God, position isn't gained through political maneuverings or favoritism. Neither is it earned or bestowed in any arbitrary way. In fact, it is not something that you and I can grasp at all. It is only given on special grounds, Jesus says. And he assures James and John, and by extension you and I here today, that they and we, if we're seeking to share his power, will indeed drink of the cup of his suffering, but... This will not assure us or them of any of the choices seats in his kingdom because God alone will select the candidates who he chooses to honor. Jesus points out that the way to greatness in his kingdom is not as we think, as they thought, by means of a mere decree on his part. No, 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 no. God has prepared special positions for special people and he knows just how to qualify them for those positions. The fact that power, position, and greatness in Christ's kingdom may not be grasped by anything that you or I can do turns everything that the world says about power on its head. I want you to consider this for a moment, that there's two modes of power in the world that you live in. One of them is going to endure forever, and the other one is going to soon come to an end. One began in heaven in the heart of Lucifer, was self-seeking, and he said, I'm going to ascend, I'm going to exalt my throne, and he thought the throne of God was something that he could grasp a hold of and put himself in that position if he exercised the power that he had. 
Genesis 3 tells us how that same mode of seeking after power entered our world when our first parents thought that they could reach some more exalted position if they did things their own way. As the old song goes, they thought, we can become more powerful and then sing, I did it my way. Since the fall of humanity, greatness has been defined in terms of power, prestige, and glory. And people have been climbing over each other, doing whatever it takes to grasp more power for themselves. Is it possible that you and I have been guilty of the same thing at times? The mode of power here is about control and influence. This is one of the modes. We're going to consider the second in our next point. Max Weber wrote some definitive assessments of what power truly is. This was his definition. He said, ability to control others, events, or resources. To make happen what one wants to happen in spite of the obstacles, resistance, or opposition. Power is a thing that is held, coveted, seized, taken away, lost, or stolen. And it is used in what are essentially adversarial relationships involving conflict between those with power and those without. This is why we have these sayings, money is power. There's a whole industry around how you can gain more power through money. Knowledge is power often. People go to university to grasp a hold of this power. Sex is power, some say. Sex appeal. The whole beauty industry, much of it is built upon the idea that you can have more power over others depending upon how you utilize your sex appeal. And science is power, certain communities say as well. The perspective of using others as stepping stones or their obstacles or their competition for your individual quest for power. The underlying philosophy here is me first, self-seeking. There's an old word picture that was given about the difference between heaven and hell, the principles of heaven and hell. They said in heaven and hell there's two tables and both of the tables have long spoons. But in heaven people are well fed and in hell people are starving. And the difference is that the spoons are too long for you to put in your own mouth, but in heaven everyone's busy feeding each other. Whereas in hell everyone's worried about where their next bite is going to come from. Self-seeking. This is the mode of power that we see around us in the world. I have to ask you a question. Again, I asked you a question at the beginning, how many of you want to share his power? A lot of hands went up. This is a question for introspection. You don't need to respond to this, but think about this in your own heart. Why do you want to share his power? Why do you pray for the Holy Spirit in the outpouring of the latter rain and want it? Is it because you want validation for your belief system? Is it because you want notoriety and influence that comes as a result of the accompanying signs that you expect to result with the Holy Spirit? Is it because you want the excitement of supernatural experiences and to watch the healings and all of the signs and acts? Is it because of the material benefits that you think could no doubt accompany this attainment of power as Simon Magnus did when he asked Peter if he could give him power, if he could give him money and get the power that Peter had? Why is it that you want to share his power? I think it's a question we all have to ask ourselves. The second qualification for sharing his power is submission to him as the true source of power. Stop grasping and submit to where he places you. But the story continues. Matthew 
continues to record that when the other ten apostles heard what James and John had done, they were filled with great indignation. But the indignation that they experienced was more a jealous indignation than the type of indignation you feel when you see somebody being oppressed, when you see a bigger bully picking on a younger, weaker, more helpless child. No, 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 it wasn't that indignation at all. Let me tell you, I was in New York a few summers ago, and uh, it was a great experience. I'd never been there before. And as I was going through New York, one of the things that frustrated me and I had to get used to was the fact that the, the, the stoplights and all of the signs and all of the traffic rules were merely suggestions there. And you just had to decide what you were going to do and then stick with it once you started because every, if you stopped and hesitated, you were going to mess everything up. When in New York... And as I was leaving New York, I was there for three weeks, back to back, and as I was leaving New York, we were driving out, and you know, there's all, if you've been there, you know there's all those toll roads, and it's a highway robbery. If you go anywhere there, you've got to pay toll for every bridge you cross and every road you drive down, and, you know, I, I came back with a lot less money than I went with just on tolls. But as I was leaving, we were going through a toll booth, and it, it was, we had been in traffic from leaving Brooklyn, where we were at, all the way to this toll booth. And it was early, it was like four o'clock in the morning. You know, they call it the city that never sleeps for a reason. And we're going to this toll booth, and we had been in bumper to bumper, snail paced traffic for over an hour. And then we see somebody driving in the lane that you're not supposed to drive in past everybody else. And, and he's about there up to almost the front of the line. And I had been watching him come all the way up. And he starts, everyone's, I mean, they're like, you know, inches between your bumper and the bumper ahead of you. Nobody's letting anybody else in. And as we watched him went by, let me tell you, about every car in that line, the driver, I could sense it. They were being filled with indignation as they were watching this driver come in and trying to press his way in. And nobody was going to give him an inch and let him in. Well, apparently there was at least one nice New Yorker let him in. And boy, I was filled with a lot of indignation. And that was more the type of indignation that the disciples were filled with. Because as I was watching him, I had to be honest with myself and say the indignation I was feeling was that I would rather have cut this whole line and got in with him than have been sitting in the whole line myself. The disciples, the ten, hear what James and John have done. And I can almost hear boisterous Peter again exclaiming as he confronts James and John, you had your mom do What? And boy, things break out then because James and John, you know them, the sons of thunder, they said, after some, some exchange occurred, you said, what about my mama? Things got intense. Jesus walks into this scene and he sees it as a teachable moment. At this critical juncture, self-seeking was threatening to fragment the group of apostles and Jesus calls them together and he says, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the great men exercise authority over them. But not so among you, he begins. The reference here to the Gentiles would immediately have evoked in the minds of the apostles the Roman occupation and the torturous day by day annoyances that they were subjected to of carrying burdens for the Romans and everything that they brought with them. They knew well how the Romans lorded it over them and exercised the authority that they had. Jesus says they do this, but this is not the way to greatness among Christ's followers. No, 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 no. 
The one who is esteemed the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the one who drinks most deeply from the spirit of self-sacrificing love. The Romans used brutal force to accomplish what they wanted. Jesus says that's not the way it's going to be with his followers at all. How often have you been tempted to use force to accomplish what you want to happen? You see, power is a lot like integrity. If you have to constantly remind people that you have it, then you don't. There's an old fable by Aesop, the Greek philosopher, the writer, and uh, he speaks about how there was an argument that broke out between the north wind and the sun of who was truly the most powerful. And the sun went behind a cloud, the wind took the first position, and as they saw this man, this old man walking along the road, they said, whoever can get the robe off of him first is the most powerful. So the wind began to blow in all of its fury and worked up almost a tornado. But the harder the wind blew, the tighter the man clenched his robe as he pressed on. Of course, eventually the wind wore itself out and said, all right, I've had my share. It's your turn. The sun comes out from behind the cloud and begins to beam down upon the gentleman. And it's not even a few moments before he takes off his jacket. And the sun looks at the wind and says, you see, gentleness and kindness are always stronger than powerful force. There's something that I really love in Child Guidance, written by Ellen White, page 161, paragraph 4. This is something that you don't want to miss. Strength of character consists of two things. Power of will and self-control. Many youth mistake strong, uncontrolled passion for strength of character. They think they're the loudest. They can make things happen the way they want. This is what strength of character is, but the truth is, she goes on, that he who is mastered by his passions is a very weak man, very weak woman, I'll add. Whoever is mastered by their passions is not strong but weak. The real greatness paragraph continues, and nobility of a man is measured by his power to subdue his feelings, not by the power of his feelings to subdue him. The strongest man is he who, while sensitive to abuse, will yet restrain passion and forgive his enemies. Wow. Wow. That's something that I want more of in my life. One thing I like a lot about George Washington is that he was a man who had some true greatness of character. George Washington, after the American Revolution, heard that there were some generals who were disgruntled because they hadn't received their back pay from Congress. And so he heard that there was a coup that was being threatened. And so he went there to try and sort things out. And he got there and he used a lot of persuasion to try and convince them not to rebel but to remain loyal. This would have been the only rebellion in American history of, amongst the military. It would have been the only coup. So he travels to Newburgh, New York. He entreats with them, but he realizes very quickly that his arguments are falling on deaf ears. So he sagaciously shifts gears. He reaches into his pocket, and he begins to pull out a letter from a congressman who has promised to help them make sure they get their back pay. 
And as he takes it out to read it to them, he takes off his glasses, or he takes out his glasses to put them on. And in very simple, calm language, he says to them, Gentlemen, you will permit me to put on my spectacles. For I have not only grown gray, but almost blind in the service of my country. When he said this, the officers were absolutely thunderstruck by his simple words and simple gestures. They had never seen this from a general before. Some of them were even moved to tears, the account says. Immediately, all talk of military revolt was stopped. Washington's force of actions and character had won out. There's another story of George Washington that I believe captures this point. After the colonies had finally finished the Revolutionary War against England, they began to express hope that Washington would become the new American king or even a dictator, some of them suggested. But instead, in December 1833, 1883, Washington went before Congress and announced that he was officially resigning the military duties and returning to private life. This was a crucial abstaining of power. And when the British king, George III, heard this from Washington, he said some very powerful words that it would do well for us to pause and ponder for a moment. He says, if he does that, he would be the greatest man in the world. One needs to pause here and think deeply about what George III was saying. When Washington showed restraint, when he might have seized power, his self-denial in the name of his country was a great gift that he gave to this young nation. One that shortly after Napoleon the Great, an example that he did not follow. There's a vivid contrast between human ambition and Christian self-sacrifice. Greatness in the world consists of lording it over others, whereas greatness in the kingdom of heaven consists of self-sacrificing service for him and others. Let's look at the final message of Jesus as he concludes this meeting of counsel with his 12 apostles. He has them all together. He now says, the last verses of chapter 20, verses 20 to 28, starting with verse um, um, 26. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to give his life as a ransom for many. Servant, in this word, is a different Greek word than is translated as slave. He uses both. He says, if you want to be great, if you want to have a great position and true greatness, is defined by service. But then he says slave, which is not merely service for others, but it is humiliating service. The lowest possible position. He says, if you want to be great, then you serve. But if you want to be first, then you've got to be willing to become the least. The humblest form of service. Christ was the greatest servant of all. The humblest servant. When we're asking ourselves the question tonight, what does it truly look like to share his power? Christ was the most complete model of this kind of greatness. He shared his power with our world from a manger, from a carpenter shop among tax collectors, harlots, sinners, healing the sick, releasing those who were harassed by demons. 
Christ truly not only Christ truly did not come to be served, but to serve, even to his very last breath. Follow him from the city as he passes through the jeering rabble. Listen to him as he looks at the sorrowful women and says, Do not weep for me, but weep for those who will be lost in the city at its coming destruction. Watch as he suffers the excruciating torture on the cross. He feels the weight of sin, yet he prays forgiveness on his enemies. Draw nearer still and listen as he loses sight of his suffering so that he can bring the assurance of salvation to a dying thief. Let your heart be moved as you hear him look down upon his mother, Mary. And he looks at John and he says, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. He came to serve even to his very last breath and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came as Jesus, the one who would save his people from their sins. It's the one who drinks most deeply from the spirit of this loving service that is truly the greatest and most powerful in the kingdom of heaven. And here's the third qualification for sharing his power. Transformation of your character from a spirit of self-seeking to a spirit of self-sacrificing service. What does it look like to truly share his power? One night, there was a group of men who were drinking on the weekend, the night, when they would always get together and they would drink. And as is often the case in these occasions, uh, you know, they, they joke about this and they go on and they're competing with each other and jeering and so on. And all of a sudden, one of them brings up well, I've got the best wife. Boy, that sparks the conversation. You know how it goes. One of them looks and he says, no, 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 no. Mine is the most beautiful of them all. And someone else says, no, well, mine's the smartest. She's got her PhD. And someone else says, that is absolutely nothing. Mine is there for me no matter what I need. And boy, she is the best cook in the world. And it goes on and on until one of them finally stands up and he says, you have no idea what you're talking about, my wife is the absolute best wife in the world. And he seemed pretty confident, and that quieted things down a bit. One of them finally says, why do you say that? He says, well, we can all get up from here right now, and we can go to my house, and we can, I can yell at my wife to get out of bed, and she's going to come down and cook us a meal at 1 o'clock in the morning. And they all laughed, and they said, you are ridiculous. Put your money where your mouth is. And he says, all right, let's go. So they got up from that house where they'd been drinking. They walked through the streets. Didn't have a designated driver. They walked through the streets and they got to the house. He walks in and loud, obnoxious. He shouts up to the, the bedroom where she's at and he says, Woman, get down here. My friends are here. We want some food. Keeps yelling until he hears a soft voice come from the bedroom. Everyone's laughing and carrying on. Soft voice says, All right, I'll be right down in a minute, dear. They think, well, okay, that's a good start, but she's going to come down here and she's going to let him have it. You just wait and see. That's what everyone else's wife would have done. But every one of them is astonished and begins to grow a little quieter when they watch her come out. She has a robe on. She walks downstairs. She goes into the kitchen. She asks if any one of them would like some water, some juice, some milk. She begins to bring things out. She starts cooking a full meal at one clock in the morning. Not a complaint, not a curse word, not even a frown. And 
boy, these guys are starting to sober up a bit. They couldn't even stay and eat the meal. They end up leaving. Just the man sitting there silent in his house. Silence was deafening that night. She comes out. She brings him the food, pushes the plate away from him, and he says, I cannot take it. I am so mean to you. There's not a woman in the world who would act to me so kind the way that you do. Why do you do it? She looks at him, and she has a look of compassion and kindness on her face, and she smiles, and she says, Dear, you know I'm a Christian. I invite you every week to come to church with me, and you've turned me down every, t- every day since the day we were married. Since we walked out of those doors, you haven't set foot in the church again. She says, I'm a Christian, and I know that when I leave this world, when my life here is done, I'm going to have an eternity with Jesus in heaven, and it's going to be wonderful. You're not going to have that because you will not accept Jesus. And she says, I want you to have your heaven here on earth because mine's still ahead of me. And it doesn't matter what I experience here. She went up and got in bed. He could not sleep. The next morning, she came out all dressed for church and she found him shaved and sober and in a suit. And they went to church together that morning. And you know what? That man gave his life to the Lord, and that's a true story. That is what it looks like to be the greatest and most powerful in the kingdom of heaven. So those of you who raised your hands with me at the beginning of this message tonight, I've got a challenge for you. You may not have known what you were asking for when you said, I want to share his power. But those of you who say, you know what? I don't know if I'm able to do it. I don't know if I'm able to do that. But I want to share with him and his power if he will help me. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but I'm going to kneel and I'm going to invite you to kneel with me. The posture of a servant. Because that's what it means to share in his power. Father in heaven, There's a lot of us that's still in us that doesn't want to be kind, to be a servant when we're provoked. But Lord, we do want to be your servants. And we do want to share your power. And while the Holy Spirit is promised to empower us for the mission, Lord, May your mission to qualify us for your Holy Spirit be effective in our lives. Please bring these qualifications into our lives that we've seen in this story tonight of being, having the fortitude to endure suffering, of submitting to you as the true source who bestows power, and of being transformed from a spirit of self-seeking to a spirit of self-sacrificing love. Lord, you alone can do that work and please do it in all of us. May tonight's message that you've given prepare us for the coming messages this weekend. Pray in Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit 
www.audioverse.org.